Graham Hancock, the British journalist and popular author, who has spent the past 30 years striving to make the case for a prehistoric human civilization, a real-life version of Atlantis, he is finally having his day in the court of public opinion. His docuseries, Ancient Apocalypse, is number one on IMDb, just 10 days after being released on Netflix. With his alternative views going mainstream around the U.S., if not the world, I reached out to a Kansas University archaeologist for his criticisms of Hancock's theories. The resulting conversation ranges over ancient monuments, the distinction between science and the occult, and the difficulties of booting and rebooting entire civilizations. Stay tuned. You are listening to the Spectral Skull Session. Tales from the twilight world of myth, mystery, and imagination. The idea behind this podcast is that we explore claims about the occult, supernatural, and paranormal from an analytical standpoint. We're open to the existence of a world beyond the five senses, and we dismiss that dogmatic skepticism that insists that any story about the unexplained has to reduce to hallucinations or swamp gas. But we're not committed to any particular theory or philosophy about what the paranormal is, and we realize that, whatever is out there, the answer is likely to be more complicated than any existing model or theory. What we bring to the table is small s skepticism, a skepticism that we throw as much on the mainstream accounts as we do on the supernatural story. Okay, let's get started. I'm very excited today be sitting down with uh, Dr. John Hoops, professor of anthropology at Kansas University. He specializes in the archaeology of South Central America and Northern South America. Welcome to the show, Dr. Hoops. Thank you so much for having me, Dane. It's a, it's a real honor to be here. I really appreciate you coming on the show to talk to us about uh, ancient history and this uh, insurgence of interest we have now with uh, the idea of a prehistoric civilization being promulgated by Graham Hancock. Um, why don't we jump right into it? I'd like to read for you what I think to be a short summary of Hancock's views, and I'd like for you to let me know if you agree that that's what he thinks, that's a description of his research program, and what in that program you take issue with as a professional archaeologist. Okay. Is that okay? That sounds great. So. Hancock has his view there was a global prehistoric civilization during the Ice Age, which we have little or no written record of today. Uh, he believes that Ice Age civilization was devastated 12,000 years ago by climate change, climate change that accompanied the end of the Ice Age. He thinks they left monuments around the world, which are 12,000 years old or older, and these Ice Age monuments are being systematically misidentified as younger than they really are. And he uses mostly astronomical arguments to make the case for these monuments actually being much older. He also uses geological evidence to make the case for a global catastrophe at the end of the Ice Age about 12,000 years ago. Um, from there, he gets the conclusion that these monuments are somehow responding to or referring to catastrophic events. And then finally, uh, he draws some similarities between the sites, artifacts, and symbolism found at the sites and indigenous people's oral traditions to build the case for a proto-historical super-civilization. 
Um, is this also your understanding of Hancock's research program? And uh, what in there do you find implausible? Well, in, in terms of your statement there, Dane, there are some inaccuracies that are in there. Um, and I can, I can address some of those, but they have to do with your representation of what Hancock is claiming, um, rather than uh, the credibility of his claims or anything like that. For example, um, you say that he claims that there are monuments all around the world uh, that date to uh, the Ice Age or before the end of the Ice Age. Um, that's not really accurate. Uh, from what I've seen in Ancient Apocalypse, what he's claiming is that pyramids and other large monuments were actually built after the end of the Ice Age, but that they were, but that their construction was something that was um, directed or inspired by individuals who had survived um, the catastrophe that destroyed the pre-younger uh, pre Dryas civilization. So, you know, at, at places like um, Gunung Padang in, in, in Indonesia, he, he mentions that there are radiocarbon dates that suggest that this structure began 20,000 years ago. But most of what's there, he's not identifying as being of Ice Age date. Um, in fact, his claim consistently has been that the cosmic catastrophe that occurred was so devastating that it wiped out all traces of that civilization. So actually, there are not monuments to be found. Um, what are found are the memories and the, the, the uh, constructions that were inspired by refugees from this catastrophe who survived the end of the Ice Age and communicated that to other indigenous peoples, teaching them farming, uh, teaching them how to build pyramids and, and other things along those lines. So. That, that's my interpretation of what it is that he's saying. Okay, that's very helpful. Yes, I, so, um, yeah, I watched the whole of the Ancient Apocalypse series. I've sort of looked at some of his books. I do, yeah, uh, acknowledge what you're saying, that he just, I guess I thought, though, he distinguished between, so sometimes it's the monuments or records of. I did think there were a couple monuments that he thought he had found that were pre-Ice Age, like, um, like the Bimini Road. Uh, site, are you familiar with this? Or he yes, I am. Yes, the coast of so he claims there's this underwater site off uh, the coast of um, Miami. Yeah, I guess that's true. It's all it's it's actually in the Bahamas, and it's been associated in the past with uh, the Bermuda Triangle and and things like that. Um, it's something that geologists identify as a limestone pavement, yes. which actually is a bit of a misnomer because it's not a pavement at all. It's just fractured and weathered limestone. Pavement implies that it was something that was constructed. But yes, I, I agree with you there. He does claim that the Bimini Road would be um, sort of a pre-Ice Age construction associated with, um, and, and, and sometimes he says Atlantis, sometimes, he, sometimes not. Uh, he's really talking about a, a global super civilization rather than specifically Atlantis, which was a, supposedly a lost land in the Atlantic Ocean someplace. But he also talks about uh, the Pacific Ocean and um, Indonesia and, and Sunda Shelf and, and things along those lines, um, but yeah, no, I, I will. I you're correct about that. There are some objects and 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 monuments that he identifies as possibly being Ice Age date. Okay, and so we're in agreement about that. And then, like, um, would you? I think Gobek Gobekli Tepe might be one where I think now they're thinking that's twelve thousand years old. 
Well, this is this is where we get into some very fine okay. points about chronology. Um, in in that you know, just so that your listeners know, uh, the Ice Age, also known as the Pleistocene, uh, is something which uh, comes to an end uh, sometime between say twelve thousand six hundred and eleven thousand seven hundred uh, B, uh, BP years ago. Um, and it's very important to remember that it's years ago and not BC because BP and BP or BP and BC are, are two different notations. So BC is something where you have to add about 2,000 years to something uh, in order to make it BP, which is before present. Anyway, um, but he's claiming that the um, that there was a cometary impact or some cosmic catastrophe that caused the end of what's called the Younger Dryas period, which is the last geological epoch or last geological period of the Ice Age, um, at around 11,600, 11,700 years ago. Uh, sometimes that gets rounded to 12,000 years ago, um, but in, in general, that's what he's talking about. But, but there is, it, it is a fine point that matters because if in fact this happened, all at once as a result of a cosmic catastrophe, then you would expect all of these dates to be the same, right? Mm. Um, the reality is that there are variations, sometimes on the order of several centuries, uh, between the various phenomena that he's talking about and how they've been dated scientifically. Ah, okay, so you're saying that see, most of his argument depends on this uh, mysterious matching up between the way he dates monuments and this geological event, and you're saying you don't even think it matches up as well as he claims it does. Yeah, I don't think I don't think that uh, I, I I'm skeptical about this younger Dryas impact hypothesis in part because um, the data that's used to support it is is not consistent. There 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 are variations in the dates, uh, there are variations in the various types of uh, uh, material remains that are that are cited for it, um, and that's a whole other issue. It, it's actually not something that Graham Hancock has has proposed. It's a it's a model that's been out there for a decade or more. Actually, it goes all the way back to the 17th century. Uh, Edmund, Edmund Haley, for whom Haley, Haley's Comet is named, was the first person to suggest that it was cometary impact that did this. But, um, and we can talk about Gobekli Tepe, but uh, Gobekli Tepe would be a, a post-Ice Age site. There, there's, there's not in, any evidence that I'm familiar with that, that puts that site before the end of the um, Younger Dryas. How old do you think it's accepted as being right now? I would say it probably dates to about 11,000 years ago. Okay. Um, it, it dates back to what we call the pre-pottery Neolithic. Um, and uh, the pre-pottery Neolithic A, in particular, is something that actually is not something new. We've known about it since the 1950s. Um, in fact, it's an um, occupation level that exists at, uh, at Jericho, also known as Tel Es Sultan. Uh, which was the location of um, the biblical city of Jericho, which itself uh, represents an Iron Age settlement, but the occupation of that particular site, that particular tell, uh, goes all the way back to what we call the pre-pottery Neolithic A, which is contemporaneous with Gobekli Tepe. That you find, let's see, there's, there's nothing surprising about these things being very old, and they're not in any, there's no evidence now you're saying that they're so old that human beings... Um, would have been building them or working on them before the Ice Age ended. No, I don't find any of that to be persuasive. <clears throat> in no. fact, um, in, in order to build large buildings, people need to have 
labor organization. They need to have a certain level of population density. Um, they need to be supported by whatever their food production is. Um, and actually, this has been a point that I've had with Hancock for a long time, is that he never explains what the subsistence base, he never explains what the, what the, what the food was <laughs> of this ancient civilization. Um, you know, it, that's something archaeologists talk about all the time. It's one of the first things that archaeologists look at is what were they eating? What were they hunting? What were they fishing? What crops did they grow? Um, and Hancock never goes into that. And in fact, we have very clear scientific evidence for when it was that sheep and goats were domesticated, when it was that wheat and barley were domesticated, uh, when it was that humans became um, farmers. Um, and um, none of that evidence indicates that any of that was happening before the end of the Ice Age. So is that one of the sort of one of the arguments then against the plausibility of a pre-Ice Age civilization that you just you can't we can't figure out where these people would have gotten all the food they would have needed to sustain city level existence? Well, that's exactly right. And mm -hmm. we also he does not give us an explanation for what food they would have been growing, what kind of agriculture they would have been practicing that presumably also disappeared without a trace and had to be reinvented all over again after the Ice Age. Uh, on top of which, something that we know um, is that unless you believe that civilization was sort of brought by uh, little green men arriving in flying saucers or ancient aliens, civilization develops over thousands of years of, 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 of the evolution of human societies. So if there was an Ice Age civilization, then that also means before that, for thousands of years, there was a slow, gradual increase in population, increasing you know, sedentism in communities, increasing social complexities. I mean, the, the existence of a civilization implies a long, long period of cultural evolution. And um, Hancock refers to this civilization, but he doesn't say a word about what its history might have been or where it might have come from, except in a couple of cases. In fact, he wrote a book called the Mars mystery, in which he implies that that pre-Ice Age civilization was brought to Earth by Martians, yeah. um, which, uh, which would have been, you know, the first ancient apocalypse was not on Earth, it was instead on Mars, um, and it was that initial apocalypse on Mars that caused the Martians to come to Earth and to found uh, the, the Ice Age civilization that had pyramids and these other things. So that's, that's a big part of Hancock's cosmology as well is that is that he has these ideas that are not presented in the series but had been presented in a previous book that he published in 1999 that used um, a feature called the face on Mars that was found in the Sidonia region of Mars as well as claims made by um, a writer named Richard Hoagland that there were pyramids and other monuments on Mars that uh, had actually been the remnants of a civilization of Martians that had been destroyed by some kind of cosmic catastrophe. So anyway, there, there's a deep cosmology to this, which actually is very, very interesting from a philosophical point of view. How so? Well, because um, it, it, it is part of um, a cosmological perspective that's sometimes referred to as the philosophia perennis, the, the, the perennial philosophy. <clears throat> I don't know if you're familiar with it, but it, it identifies a cyclicity to human existence with um, repeated periods of uh, destruction and rebirth over very long periods of time. Mm. Excuse me, that becomes a very important part of a 
thread of Western esotericism and occult beliefs that I think is sort of underlies uh, the cosmology that Graham Hancock is presenting. Yeah, I guess um, so you can connect that to the culture today. I don't know if you've seen this meme. The meme is uh, like strong men create good times. Good times create weak men. Weak men create hard times. Hard times create strong men. It's been sort of a meme I've seen people circling around to sort of explain recent history for the United States. But um, sure, I can I can see how that resonates with this with this idea of uh, cyclicity in civilization. Well, you know, for me, it's a, it's just kind of like the mind blowing idea that well, this might have all happened before and could happen again. Right. Well, the 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 assertion the assertion in the um, Western esoteric tradition, um, this perennial philosophy, the, the the assertion is that in fact that is what the history of humankind has been is is a period of, or a uh, a process of cyclical creation, uh, destruction, and rebirth that has occurred over and over and over again. And I think that that is the main agenda, the main goal of Graham Hancock is to promote um, this occult tradition. Uh, he's not trying to make a scientific mm. argument. What he's making is a metaphysical argument. And, and he's not very uh, specific about it. He's not very clear about it. <clears throat> but I really think that that is the key to understanding. And actually, he's, he's the subtitles of his books are things like uh, the, the, the key to the lost civilization. But I think the key to Graham Hancock is understanding that his goals are metaphysical, esoteric ones and not scientific ones. Well, maybe we have to sort of split those apart. So there could be people who are interested in this material because, and I guess this is probably me, for me, just like thoughts like, oh, if people were around during the Ice Age and then they witnessed it end catastrophically, like that would have been amazing. And then the thought of human beings um, being culturally affected by a catastrophe, uh, that's amazing to me. Um, it also got me interested in thoughts about, you know, just the idea that we could go look at the landscapes and try to infer things about the past, which is, you know, just basic geology. It kind of inspired me. Maybe that's sort of some of us are kind of interested in it because um, it just excites our imagination in a sort of scientific way. But you're talking about you think of a sort of philosophical, boy, it's not even philosophy, sort of a mythological uh, impetus for this way of thinking. Yes, I, I think that's correct. So what's the significance of that? What's the significance of this esoteric tradition? And um, what's what's important about that? Uh, I think one of the things that's important about it that we haven't really talked about, but is has been a, 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 a constant element of, of what Hancock's um, cosmology has been is not only that was there this cosmic catastrophe that happened in the past uh, and possibly more than once, probably more than once, but it's going to happen again and it's probably going to happen again soon. And we all need to get ready because uh, the earth is going to right. be destroyed again. <laughs> and um, there are only going to be, and actually if you saw Roland Emmerich's film 2012, do you remember that one? Yeah. Yes. I do. Um, and, and do you remember how it ends? No, I actually don't remember. The well, end. the principal characters all go to China where they are boarding these enormous arcs uh, that are mm. built to survive the end of the world with the implication that those arcs are going to carry them to settle them someplace and become the founders uh, of, of a new civilization. Um, okay. So it, it, the implication at the end of that film is that, <clears throat> is that a, a cycle has ended and a new cycle is going to be beginning. And Roland Emmerich has said that he was directly inspired by Graham Hancock's work uh, in, in writing the script of that movie. And it also 
a, a previous movie of his called 10,000 BC. It was also Hancock inspired. Um, but the, the idea is that there, there, is, there is a coming cosmic catastrophe um, and that only a small number of individuals will survive. And this is something that is also part of this esoteric uh, tradition. Uh, if, you, if you know about um, ascended masters, or if you know about the nine unknown men, uh, or the idea mm -hmm. that there have been a small number of individuals who are um, who have the, uh, the, the the privilege of knowing and carrying forward this esoteric knowledge um, that has been given to to a small number of individuals generation over generation over generation and through these cosmic cycles. Um, that that's a very important part of this cosmology that there that there is a a small number of individuals who are enlightened and informed um who who are the ones who have this knowledge and when you read the titles of uh hancock's books that's who it refers to um the these individuals these enlightened individuals are are the gods that he refers to in fingerprints of the gods uh that you you're you're seeing the the effects of these of these individuals and influencing humanity when he refers to magicians of the gods. These are the magicians. That's an important question for people to be able to answer. Who are the magicians that he's talking about? Um, they, they are references to this, this perennial occult tradition uh, of a small number of adepts who know the esoteric reality and will transmit that to the next iteration. Okay, so could part of the issue be here be less about uh, looking forward to and worrying about the end of the world and more about um, encouraging people to look for um, secret wisdom that's been handed down by a small number of superior beings? Absolutely. I think that that's, I think that that's exactly right. Yeah. Now, I've never heard Graham Hancock sort of push us in that direction because it always seems like the idea is that all the records from these people in this prehistoric civilization were destroyed. Um, there isn't really a way to get back to that, you know, to the, the details of what they believed or what wisdom they had. Well, but there is a way to get back to that. And, and Hancock writes about that. Um, he, he published a book called The Supernatural, oh, and, yeah. and in which uh, the basic premise of the book is the way that you can communicate with these hidden masters um, is through the use of psychedelics. Uh, oh. and, and that it's in the context of a psychedelic, uh, uh, a psychedelic revelation, something that can occur through the use of mushrooms or ayahuasca or even cannabis or other other types of substances, that you will be able to have direct contact with these individuals who will transmit some of that wisdom to you. Um, I don't know whether Hancock conceives them as the. Um, the machine elves that Terence McKenna talks about, uh, but people familiar with Terence McKenna's uh, spiel know that he also refers to these uh, these entities, these these these. Sometimes they're identified as jokesters, sometimes they're machine elves, but they're they're in they're they're entities that can that can transmit this um, this occult information. And you know something that I think is an important part of Hancock's. Um, uh, uh, perspective is that it, it's very much an occult perspective in the sense that the word occult means hidden, meaning that not all of the records were destroyed, not all of the information is gone. There is some information, it's just occult, it's just 
hidden. And there are methods that one can use to, to recover that, um, but, but they're not available necessarily to everyone. Um, and they're going to remain hidden and um, privileged. Okay, wow. Yeah, I was not familiar with that. I mean, I know that when he appears on Joe Rogan, he's done it a couple times, he always goes on these tangents about psychedelics. And, um, you know, we're open to that on the show. We're open to anything, but uh, we do like to try to compartmentalize. So, I mean, that's a whole other can of, you know, ep epistemic worms to open if you want to talk about psychedelics as a way to gain special kinds of knowledge and I think that I, I think, think that's, that's absolutely true and we could do a whole other podcast just on, on yeah. psychedelics and, and the occult and I, I wouldn't <clears throat> want to go there but now you would work a little bit on shamanism though right uh, can we actually shift away then from Grant Hancock and I wanted to ask you about some of the other research I've seen that ancient peoples may have been responding to astronomical events like, are you familiar with uh, Kenneth Tankersley and uh, Stephen Myers at the University of Cincinnati? They argue that the uh, Milford Earthworks site in Ohio is built on top of uh, like a comet uh, impact location. Yes, I'm familiar with uh, Tankersley's work. Um, I believe he's also been involved with the idea that the Hopewell culture uh, came to an end as a result of a cometary impact. Um, so it's not just the end of the Younger Dryas. It's other events that happen later in time. Um, I don't find that to be persuasive or credible, and most of the archaeologists that I'm familiar with, including some specialists in the archaeology of Ohio, uh, find it to be an utter crock and, un, un, and, oh, really? and, and not, not, not credible. Oh, that's too bad. I read their 2022 paper. It just came out, I think, in January, where they, and they had multiple converging lines of evidence. They had these microspherals, and the, uh, they found some radioactivity. On the ground, it's looked to me interesting. Of course, I'm not an archaeologist, but um, no. So the, they're not responding well to that. the The community is not finding that persuasive at this time, is what you're saying. That's correct. You can find a lot of critiques of it and a lot of discussions of it. And in fact, one of the things that I understand to be a principal objection is that there isn't, there simply isn't enough information on the the the, the background presence of things like microspherules. Um, you know, the Earth's atmosphere is bombarded constantly by micrometeorites and space dust and other types of things. There is a constant rain all around the planet of microscopic particles that come from uh, fragments of asteroids and other things that burn up in the atmosphere. And we know the Hopewell people were particularly interested in uh, meteorites. They seem to cherish them. Well, they probably were able to identify um, unusual stones. I mean, meteorites often have very high iron and nickel content, and, and as you know, as metal objects, they would have been especially interesting. So people all over the world identified them as unusual stones. They did not necessarily associate them with um, with uh, um, meteors or meteorites, however. So can I ask you, one of the things that I found really interesting in that 2022 paper they wrote, um, they used indigenous stories about celestial events as evidence. I don't think to support their theory, I think what they were doing there was saying um, archaeological and geological evidence supports that an impact event happened. I think you might dispute that. And then they went on to say um, the fact of the impact event and the content of the stories taken together are evidence that the Hopewell people were influenced by and in some way responded to an astronomical event. What do you think about that method? 
but the method that we could we might be able to learn something about where stories came from from looking at geology climate change astronomical events do you think there's any possibility there it's a very interesting question but let me ask you uh, uh, let me ask you a personal question that will kind of lead us to in, into this discourse um, do you know the names of your great great grandparents Oh, uh, yeah, I think I know one of them. Oh. Augustus. I know a, I had a great-great-grandfather named Augustus. Okay. Do you know the names of your great-great-great-grandparents? Yeah, it starts to break down. We've got a book on the shelf that my cousin wrote, but I haven't memorized it. Okay, so you can probably go back three generations, but not four generations. Yeah, I think that he went back at one point. Okay, do, do you realize that the oral history arguments about the end of the Younger Dryas requires stories that were transmitted for 300 generations yeah so that'd be that would be incredible yeah it's a, it, it, if you've ever played the game of telephone uh, it's simply not possible to go through 300 iterations and 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 not have substantial change um, so the idea that accurate accounts were transmitted orally or even in written form uh, from 11,000 years ago is just absurd it just doesn't happen. So since you're you're an expert in um, uh, American archaeology, can I ask you a broader question about archaeology and fringe views? We had a guest come on this show, uh, Bruce Fenton. He has this theory that a large crystal broke up in orbit over Australia 700,000 years ago. He told me he's really frustrated. He feels like he's done a lot of scientific research. He's read the papers. He's engaged with the archaeological work. He's written a book. And he says, and nobody will pay attention to him. So his complaint is that um, he can't get any academic attention. Uh, what would you say to somebody like that who has a, a view that's, you know, outside consensus and they want to get attention? They want to engage with the archaeological community. What would they need to do? Do they need to get a graduate degree? How would they go about that? Well, it's not a hypothetical for me. I've actually engaged directly with Bruce online. Oh, really? We, 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 we've communicated on social media. He's presented various of his uh, arguments to me, including his rejection of the out-of-Africa evolutionary model for modern Homo sapiens. Um, what I would say to Bruce and what I would say to anyone uh, who's interested in doing this, is it's what I've said in the past um, to, to people like John Major Jenkins, who you may remember was one of the principal proponents of the idea of the Maya apocalypse and the galactic alignment yeah. that was going to occur on December 21st, 2012. Well, I, I said to John Major Jenkins for years, and I would also say this to, to Bruce Fenton and to others, write up your argument in as persuasive a fashion as you possibly can, citing the best evidence that you have available, and submit that to a professional journal for consideration for publication. That's how science works. Now, they would say, oh, there's a conspiracy, they're going to dismiss this because they don't like this idea, and but that's bullshit. If you can make an argument, a persuasive argument, with, with, with credible scientific evidence, it will be considered by peers and, and will be given a fair consideration for publication in, in a journal. That, that's how it's done. And it doesn't matter whether you've got scientific credentials and PhDs from here or from there. If the argument that you're making is a persuasive argument uh, that, that draws upon uh, credible evidence, um, I feel quite confident that, that, that even, even amateurs, uh, even people who are not professionals, can publish in professional journals. That said, we have a real problem right now with professional journals online. 
There are what are called predatory journals that exist for the purpose of publishing papers that get rejected by mainstream journals. Yeah. And they, they are peer-reviewed, but the peer review is manipulated uh, so that they pick reviewers who are going to be receptive and favorable to these, uh, to these types of arguments. And so there's a proliferation of journals out there, and you really have to check into what the credentials are of a particular journal. That said, mainstream journals like Science and Nature every once in a while publish a real dud. They, they publish something that is completely wrong. Uh, a good example of that was the, a paper in Nature on the Ceruti Mastodon, which was the claim of a 130,000-year-old um, uh, mastodon remains associated with uh, stone, what were thought to have been stone artifacts that indicated uh, human butchering and modification of the mammoth remains, but at 130,000 years ago. Um, and that was published in Nature, which is a leading mainstream journal. But within a year, it was shot down, and within less than two years, uh, the, the, the more credible explanation was that the archaeological site had been modified by earth-moving equipment in the construction of a nearby highway, and that that had caused the bones and the, and, and the stones to move in such a way that it made it appear that they were associated when, in fact, that's not what was mm -hmm. going on. So even mainstream journals, where every once in a while, you know, the Cold Fusion paper was back in the 90s was another example. But every once in a while, mainstream journals will, will, will publish something that, that does not hold up for more than a year or two. But that's why they publish it. That's the reason for publishing this, is peer-reviewed publication is not the end of the process. It's the beginning of the process. It, it lays out the argument and the evidence for the larger community to decide. Hmm. And that's the best path to getting information to that's the best path for getting a new theory based on evidence out there to um a, a rigorous audience and but people like bruce fenton and graham hancock and john major jenkins and a whole raft of others will not use that route they they they, they will not even try i did not know that you had spoken to him i did not yeah i hadn't had the specific conversation about him submitting this to a peer-reviewed journal but that's what I would tell Bruce. I, I have I, I communicated Bruce mostly on uh, his objections to the out of Africa yeah. hypothesis, not so much on the big crystal explosion. And I, I was just using him really as an example because you know Graham Hancock will say the same kind of thing, right? He can't get a fair hearing, you know. He's being uh, oppressed, and uh, you know he he made a lot of uh, noise about the fact he was denied access to the Serpent Mound in Ohio, and then he's like, well, this is proof that the, of the suppression. But again, you would just say, well, look, you have to sit down and you have to write it up, right? Write it up, submit it, and then we'll see. I, I think that's correct. And you need to write it up in the form of a 30-page manuscript, not a 600-page book. Um, and you need to be as concise and as succinct as you possibly can. Uh, but you also need to be persuasive using credible evidence. And that's the problem, is that in even 600 pages, in book after book after book, Hancock has not presented a uh, a credible, a credible argument, one that, one that anybody who's familiar with the evidence and familiar with the, the, the whole history of it uh, will, will find to be credible. Yeah. And, and in fact, for those of us, myself included, who are familiar with these esoteric occult traditions, it becomes very clear what his agenda is. Uh, and, and it's not a scientific agenda. Yeah, I think that could be part of the problem is that even if, if Graham Hancock um, has the argument to make I mean, maybe he's just been so steeped in this um, this other occult tradition that it creates a lot of uh, 
sort of muddying of the waters, I guess, for people like you who would you'd start to read it and you'd say, well, I recognize this as coming from some place that is bunk. Right. Well, it's and and I, I would I wouldn't necessarily dismiss it as bunk. It's you know is 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 Christianity bunk? Is Judaism bunk? Is Islam bunk? I, I I wouldn't say that at all. I would just say that those are religious or slash spiritual traditions. They're not science, and and that's that's the the distinction. That's the critical distinction there. Um, but 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 the bunk appellation I think is is a problem because people you should not dismiss somebody's spiritual beliefs as bunk. Um, when, when they're making it as if it's science, yes, you can say as science, this is bunk, but as a, as a, as a belief practice, as a faith practice, as a spiritual practice, I don't think you can call that bunk because it's meaningful to that person or those people. But it's possible to recognize what Hancock is doing as coming directly out of Victorian, Edwardian, alternative, occult, esoteric practices, including ones that go back to Ignatius Donnelly, who wrote two books, one in 1882, the other one in 1883, and most of the arguments that Graham Hancock is making are 140 years old. They come directly out of the work of Ignatius Donnelly, and then Donnelly gets cited and amplified by Helena Blavatsky, and Helena Blavatsky was one of the founders of the Theosophical Society, along with Henry Steele Alcott. Uh, Their work is echoed by people like um, uh, Annie Besant and Charles Webster Leadbeater and Rudolf Steiner um, and and uh, and others um, in in what is a Western esoteric tradition. Now, if you're interested in learning about that tradition uh, as a tradition, what would you recommend to read? Is there any good texts like uh, trying to get the feel for this whole idea of a um, esoteric tradition believing in cyclical civilizations and the passing down of information by great masters. Yes, I have a very specific recommendation. It's a book that is called The Only Tradition, written by William Quinn. Um, It's based on his doctoral dissertation at the University of Chicago, where he was a student of religious studies scholar Mircea Eliade. Um, And although Quinn is writing from the perspective of a believer, he's writing from what anthropologists refer to as an emic perspective, that is an insider's perspective, I think that Quinn lays out more clearly than I've seen from anyone else what this tradition consists of. Yeah, great. What if you're just really interested in this idea of learning about the past? For a lot of our audiences in America, we do have people in Germany, all over the world, but um, we do have a bulk of our audience is in America. Anything you'd recommend to people maybe to read if you're you're like, well, I'm inspired to actually maybe go out and learn more about indigenous people here in America? Well, you're going, you're going, you may chuckle at my recommendation, but I'm, I'm dead serious about it. Use Wikipedia. <laughs> Wikipedia is actually a free, widely accessible, ubiquitous public encyclopedia. And the articles that have been written about indigenous peoples, about archaeology, about pseudo-archaeology, about esoteric, about a whole host of things, uh, are actually pretty good. Now, Granted, it's not something that's been peer-reviewed. It's not something that's been certified by an academic press. But you can learn an enormous amount by, by, by following those rabbit holes in Wikipedia. That's tremendously helpful. Thank you. Do you have any, um, any petroglyphic or uh, ancient sites out near you out in Kansas University? Anything in Missouri? 
that you're really fond of that a person could go visit? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, I've actually been answering some questions over the past uh, few days about a place that I've become intrigued by, but I haven't visited myself. Uh, and it actually is one of these places kind of sits on the edge of um, sort of imagination and reality. Uh, but it's a place called Etzanoa, E-T-Z-A-N-O-A, in Arkansas City, Arkansas City, Kansas, uh, which is claimed actually to have been a lost city of the Wichita people, a, a, a large settlement of perhaps 10,000, 20,000 people. Um, I'm not sure whether I believe it yet, <laughs> but uh, you can go to Ark City and they will give you tours and, and, and you can consider whether it's something that is, that, that is real or not. Uh, but it's it's one of those things that's being actively discussed right now um, on the basis of various lines of evidence. But we do not know with confidence yet whether it was a real place or not. And I, and I would invite your listeners to, to consider it and uh, perhaps even visit it and um, come to their own conclusions as this research unfolds. That's fascinating. Lost City of Wichita. Dr. Hoops, thank you very much for coming on the show. You're, you're very welcome. Oh, one last thing that I will mention. You're in St. Louis, right? Tell people to drive over to Collinsville and visit Cahokia. Uh, the, the, Cahokia is an amazing place, and the site museum there is one of the best in the country. Yes, that's definitely So so, And I'm always amazed by how many people I meet who are from St. Louis, and I say, oh, do you know about Cahokia? And they say, what? It's a World Heritage Site. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Cahokia is super important. Thank you so much. My pleasure.